Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hello and a warm welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. I'm Giles Brandreth. I love words, I love language, and I love my colleague Susie Dent. She's Britain's leading lexicographer. I'd say she's the world's leading lexicographer, but given that Something Rhymes with Purple is listened to internationally, I don't want people down there in Tasmania thinking, no, I'm the best, I'm the best, and thinking they're not as good as Susie Dent. But I'd be surprised if they were. How are you, Susie? I'm extremely well, thank you very much. I have to say I'm slightly in need of a cup of coffee. It's been quite a busy week. What have you been up to? Just lots of countdown filming this week. So we're lucky enough to still be in studio at the moment, even though obviously the world is not looking great around us. ITV are being amazing and keeping us as safe as possible. I've been doing that and writing a little bit, you know. I mean, you know what it's like, Jazz. you never I, stop. I do know what it's like, and I've been working for Channel 4 as well. The countdown programme that Susie mentioned is a words and numbers game that's been running on Channel 4 since the channel began about 40 years ago. And it's hugely popular. I wasn't on it then, just to say. And she was. It was before she was born. Um, <laughs> but, but sadly, I was on it because it was quite a way after I was born. Anyway, it goes strong, this channel, and the programme is brilliant. And I've been doing a programme for Channel 4 about canals, which is currently going oh, out yes. on Sunday nights. And yes. um, I travel along canals with my friend Sheila Hancock. And so maybe, actually, we ought to do an episode about waterways. Oh, yes, the water, the world of canals and rivers. Yes, uh, brings oh, the beautiful words associated with that. Is this the one where everyone celebrated the arrival of slow TV? Is it slow TV or canal things where you actually simply watch? And obviously, as well as you and Sheila, you just watch a barge move very slowly. That is the, the idea. I, I think we may have made it a bit too dynamic. That oh. certainly is what people have loved with it for the first 12 series. It's mm. been done so far by a brilliant couple called Timothy West and Brunella Scales. They're a husband and wife. They're both actors of great distinction. And they've done it now for 12 years. They've hung up their windlass which is something that if you're into the world of canals, you'll know what it is. And you can tell us what it is when we know our broken on it. And okay. they've handed over to us. We couldn't replace them because they are irreplaceable. We're just different. But yes, oh. it's an extraordinary experience because Sheila Hancock is uh, soon to be 88. I'm mm. in my early 70s. And we just have never done anything like this before. We've never been on a canal. And it's really a fascinating experience. It's exhilarating at times. Calming too. It, it is supposed to be slow TV, but unfortunately, Are you living on the boat? we're living on the boat, and Are unfortunately, you? my navigation is not what it should be. So it's not <laughs> quite as smooth. It's, I mean, on the first day, I crashed into a bridge twice, so the insurance premiums have gone up. But it's quite fun. So I hope people will enjoy that. So that's what we've been doing this. Past and, and are you cooking? Week. Just to I, lead us on to today's theme, are you cooking and providing for everybody, the crew, or how does it work? The crew, we are the crew. 
It's just okay. us. It's just two people. It's just Sheila and me. So the camera is just on the barge looking at you slowly the drifting camera into is, a bridge. Because of social distancing, the camera is on another barge oh. next alongside us or okay. on the riverbank. Or there is something called a GoPro, a permanently yes. fixed camera that just yes. records everything. And then they do yeah. edited version of it. Not only am I cooking, but I have broadened my repertoire as well Ooh. as doing my signature dish, baked beans on toast. I am providing... Sheila with pasta. Mm. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. Yes. Pasta. Okay. Great Italian pasta, because it's interesting to me how it's infected the language. I remember Mussolini, Mussolini, the dictator, the Italian dictator, saying, give me a balcony and I can take Rome. I know that Giuseppe Garibaldi, when he liberated Naples in 1860, declared, it will be macaroni, I swear to you, that will unite Italy. Now, we have mentioned Garibaldi before, mm. as well as being an Italian uh, leader. He's also a biscuit. And we've mentioned macaroni, as in Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yes. Uh, so we might as well start with macaroni and pasta. What, what's the history of pasta? How has it infected our language? Explore all this for us. Well... It's just everywhere now, isn't it, pasta? And I can't remember as I was growing up ever really having pasta very much. I might have had a sort of lasagna. So I was tempted to think that actually this is quite a new phenomenon for us. But in fact, the history is extraordinary. It's widely associated with Italy, obviously. But apparently the Chinese were making a noodle-type food as early as 3,000. 1000 BC, which is quite extraordinary. And then some credit Marco Polo with introducing pasta to Italy after he'd been to the Far East, so that would preserve the, the Chinese connection. But in Greek mythology, it's believed that Vulcan, the god that gave us Volcano, invented a device that made strings of dough. So that might be the earliest mention of a pasta making machine. Is pasta basically the word paste? Is that what pasta means? That's absolutely right. Yeah, that's where it comes from. And that underlies so many different words. So it will ultimately take you back to pastry, to pate, to patisserie, to pasty. Oh my goodness, there's so many. So yes, it's all the idea of a paste. And ultimately it goes back to the Greek for barley porridge and their word also for sprinkling. So maybe sprinkling or salting their porridge. So really long history linguistically as well. Well, there are lots of fun facts about pasta. I believe pasta used to be kneaded with the feet. Traditional pasta was made that oh. way. If pasta is cooked properly, apparently it should stick to a wall when it's thrown. Oh, yes. That's the spaghetti <laughs> trick. That definitely works, I have to say. Kids love that. Really? Mm. It's traditionally eaten by hand. Did you know that? Do you tell your children that? No, but my youngest definitely does enjoy eating spaghetti by hand. I try not to frown at that point. There are two main groups of pasta, fresh pasta and dried pasta. Mm -hmm. Yes, you knew That's that? That's true. And as a student, I always, always used to make the mistake of putting fresh pasta in and cooking it for as long as I would cook dried pasta and the result was an unholy mess. Fresh pasta only needs a couple of minutes usually. Let's get down to some specific names of types of pasta. Thomas Jefferson third president of the United States of America, credited with bringing the first macaroni machine to America in 1789 when he returned home after serving as ambassador to France. Macaroni. It's a kind of pasta, yes? Macaroni is a kind of pasta. I kind of feel 
like macaroni cheese. I don't really feel like I'm eating pasta, but of course you are. But they're tiny, aren't they? They are traditionally, I think, in the older generations' cupboards, the type of pasta that you would normally find would be macaroni. And that goes back to the Italian for dumpling. So again, linguistically, it's not really got a very strong connection with the pasta that we would think of today. Uh, if you were to go into a restaurant, are you quite fussy about which pasta shape you have? Because I love spaghetti. For me, it's the ultimate comfort food. Yes. Spaghetti means little strings, which is exactly what they look like. That's the Italian for little strings. Is the getty bit the little bit? Yes, that's the diminutive. And the, the spa is what? The spag, I guess, spag. is the... I don't actually speak Italian, as you will probably know, but yes, that's the stringy bit. And the hetty, etty is the... It's like et in French, so a cigarette yes. For is a me, cigar. pasta is spaghetti. I love spaghetti. Yes. I like it quite a thin spaghetti. And mm -hmm. I like actually a very simple spaghetti with cheese, olive oil, That'll do for me, to be honest. Yes. Maybe a little tomato sauce. I don't need it to mm. be made overcomplicated. Homemade pesto. I'm not so sure about pesto. Oh, what well, jarred pesto, I'm not so sure about either. But if you make it yourself with fresh basil and pine nuts and cheese, parmesan or the vegetarian equivalent, it's so good. It comes from the Italian pestare, meaning to pound or crush. So that's linked to the pestle and mortar. Oh, that's with good. With which you might crush your... And also Basil. the idea of pesto pasta is quite fun. I'll have a little pesto, pesto pasta, pasta, please. Little when pesto I was pasta, please. Ages ago, one of the very first interviews I did, they asked me for my favourite smells in the entire world. One of them was the smell of freshly mown grass, which a lot of people I know would say. And the other was fresh basil. There is nothing like the smell of fresh basil to conjure up the Tuscan countryside sunshine. It's just gorgeous. I always felt that. And then I read, was it Tobias Smollett? whose mm. favourite smell was to take his chamber pot and with a wooden spoon stir it. And no. he just loved the smell. I know, it's slightly shocking, but I'm throwing it in. It has a literary heritage. I think it was Smollett. People can correct us if I've got that wrong. That sounds that like wrong, a James Joyce type thing. Well, <laughs> I think it was Smollett earlier than James Joyce. So Ooh. 18th century... Yeah, 18th century English writer, Tobias Smollett. Yes, let's get back to pasta. Um, yeah, let's get back to pasta. But that's interesting. If, if I've got that wrong, do let us know. Purple at mm. something else.com. Spaghetti. Have you ever had spaghetti puttanesca? No. Spaghetti puttanesca is absolutely gorgeous as well. So this is a sauce with garlic and black olives. I'm not a huge anchovy fan, but you can put anchovies in there as well and tomatoes. And it goes back to the Italian puttana, meaning prostitute. So it's linked oh. to the French putain. And the sauce is said to have been created by prostitutes because it could be cooked very quickly between clients' visits. Oh. Spaghetti puttanesca. And it's interesting that there's so much of that kind of thing behind English words like fornicate. One theory is that it goes back to the Latin fornix, meaning oven. And it's said that prostitutes would gather at night by the ovens in ancient Rome in order to keep warm. And then, of course, that became linked to their trade and, you know, and, and fornication. But that, that's one theory. I mean, it's, it's not completely, you know, set in stone. But yes, it's the idea of an arch and the ovens were often arched and vaulted chambers and then later that became associated with brothels so there you go just thought i'd throw that one in but i think that's completely gripping this is why yeah. i love this program i learn <laughs> things fornication it never occurred to me that it would be to do with ovens no. and in brothels and the poor prostitutes keeping themselves warm before they had yeah. their what was it again that pasta was called puttanesca 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 mm. putta being prostitute as in puta, puta yes exactly Put very good 
Give me some other ones. What about, i tell you what I do like. I like linguini. Yes. Oh, that's a nice one. Linguini means little tongues. So it's linked to oh. linguist, language, all sorts. Tagliatelli? <laughs> Tagliatelli means little strips. So tagliare in Italian is to cut. So it almost looks like you're cutting ribbons, doesn't it? And in fact, that's what fettuccine means. Fettuccine means little ribbons as well, which is quite cool. Farfalle, which is a favourite here as well. Farfalle, they look like little bow ties, don't they? Mm. But actually they are or originally butterfly shaped. It goes back to the Italian for butterflies, farfalle. Ah, what about fusilli? Fusilli, those are the ones that look they're slightly corkscrew shaped and it goes back, we think, to the Italian fuso, meaning spindle. So little spindles is the idea there. Penne, which I think is probably the most popular pasta, isn't it? Penne mm. goes back to penne, meaning feather. So little feathers, I think it is. And actually that then is related to the pen that we use to write things because, you know, of course they had quills. And also if you're penate, you have feathers, etc. So yeah, penate meant quill originally or feather. And penne is with two ends. Penne is with two ends. So not like the pens that we write with. Gnocchi is a nice one. Do you like gnocchi? I discovered no, those when in I Italy. Don't you don't like, like gnocchi. Okay. Is that the one that's got, it isn't really pasta. It's a, made of a different sort of potato. Yeah, they're made from thing. potato often yeah. or semolina. So they are more dumplings. Yeah. And those go back, because if you think of their shape, it goes back to the Italian nocchio without the G, meaning a knot in wood. So, you know, you get those sort of walls, W-H-O-R-L-S, in wood. Gnocchis are sort of slightly shaped like that, the knots that you would find in a grain of wood. Ravioli? Ravioli. I love ravioli. So, no one seems to know, but possibly from an Italian dialect word meaning cheap stuff, perhaps because they were cheap to make. Or it might go back to rapa, a vegetable root. So no one seems to quite know that one. There's another one, ravoliere, to wrap. So who knows? Lots of possible origins for that one. But I do love ravioli parcels. What would be your ideal meal in the world? Of pasta or generally? Well, generally. And I think mine might actually involve pasta. Oh, really? Yeah. I love a good veggie lasagna, I have to say. We're talking pasta and I know you're, you're veggie too. Mine would probably be a really good veggie curry, I think. Oh. Yeah, that would be my... I love pulses and I love lentils and things. And in fact, you can sometimes combine the two. So I went somewhere once where they did spaghetti with chickpeas, which I never would have thought of putting together at all, but it's absolutely delicious. What about you? Well, I had a wonderful meal once. I've had lots of wonderful meals. I've been very blessed. But I remember going to Verona and mm. being on a hill outside Verona at an outdoor restaurant, beautiful sunshine, apricity, that sunshine on your back, oh, that lovely. warm feeling of sunshine. Yes. And simply a bowl of spaghetti with mm. lots of olive oil and some sort of leaves sprinkled on top and cheese. Mm. And, and it couldn't have been simpler. But the whole setting was absolutely perfect and heavenly. How lovely. I go through food phases. I've just discovered near me a Georgian restaurant, not a restaurant oh. founded in the 18th century, but food from Georgia, Tbilisi. And it's yeah. fantastic. And these amazing people, they opened this restaurant a month or so ago in the middle of this pandemic. They've opened it and it's working. People are going there to oh, eat. Isn't that fantastic? That I'm, is amazing. I'm so thrilled for them. Food is, is terribly, lovely. terribly important. Has it infected it our language overall, food? Does food play a part in the development oh, of language? 
Absolutely huge. I mean, it's fundamental. So do you remember me talking about meat and how meat actually meant all food originally? And then as people needed to differentiate between different types of food, they started to talk about vegetables as green meat, for example, or sweet things as sweet meat. And we still have that in one man's meat is another man's poison. It's one man's food is another man's poison. So that's there. We've got Lord and Lady revolving around the person person that kept the bread and the person that needed the bread. A companion has got panis bread at its heart. It's someone with whom you ate your bread, a mate with somebody with whom you ate your meat. I mean, it's absolutely fundamental to, as you would expect, you know, it is the bread of life, isn't it? It's how we earn our bread, etc., etc. It's everything. It is everything. I remember when I was at university, like you, I was at Oxford University. One of my tutors was a great man called Theodore Zeldin. And I remember him explaining to me that history always seems to be about guns and cannons. But in Mm. fact, more important as implements in the story of the world than guns and cannons have been the knife and fork. Yes. It's an interesting thought, that, isn't it? Yes. And the spork. Mm, Yes, do you remember the spork? That just popped into my head. Oh, oh, the spork was a spoon that combined, had a fork and a spoon element to it. Yes. I never got on with that. Though I must say, when I go to a Chinese restaurant, I do want a chopstick to eat with. Do you? I've not quite mastered the chopsticks. There's no special pasta implement, is there? And I have to say, to my shame, and apologies to purple listeners, aficionados of pasta, I did used to break my spaghetti. Oh, sorry, that's my door. Let me just go and get my door. Why don't we take a commercial break now? We're going to take a break. This shows. I'll go uh, say hi to Lloyd, the postman. This is made in real time because uh, Susie is doing it from her home in Oxford. I'm doing it from mine in London. And there's been a knock at the door, which I means it's time to take a break. Also from something else Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. Join Katie for a series of powerful and inspirational conversations with people who have triumphed over adversity. With guests including Fern Cotton. And what about when you get really lazy journalism? So like people that draw just one line, they take it out of context. And that's really sad because... It is, it is. And I've also been on the receiving end of it so, Mm. so many times. Sometimes to really tragic levels for me where I've really not felt able to cope with it. Yeah. Zoe Sugg and Nadia Hussein. I think the, f- the thing with women, firstly, is that women sometimes don't always like to see other women succeed. Mm-hmm. And I, I, th- I think that's right, yeah. yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of that, and I think that's why just it, it's really hard sometimes because it, 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 in the last four years, I've changed so much. Mm. Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps. Pasta perfect. I'm quite peckish now, aren't you? Oh, I'm starving. I have to say, I haven't even had breakfast yet. I might have to go straight for the lunch. Go straight for the lunch. Actually, yes. if you miss out one meal a day, if you've got plenty to do, that mm. works. Two meals a day probably is enough. Some people say you should be nibbling all the time. I just don't know what to do. Just be sensible. I know. Well, as you know, I struggle to keep weight on, so I need to just basically keep eating. But pasta is really good for that and also lots of olive oil and things. Yes, and I think athletes eat a lot of pasta. I Carbs. Am, I'm a friend of Sebastian Coe, who used to run very fast, still runs mm. pretty fast, faster than me anyway. And yeah. he was a great devotee of pasta. It gives you suddenly sort of instant, makes you run. It's good the night before a marathon. 
I know that when I did my long, long, long cycle, lots of pasta the night before. And actually, we've had a lovely question on the topic of food and drink. You know, we were, we've been discussing tea and biscuits and thermopots, lovers of hot drinks. Tim Wilson from New Zealand has been in touch and he says, I wonder if you can help me. Is there a word for the disappointment felt for when you go to have another sip of coffee and it's all gone, but you were sure there was some left? Mm. And do you remember me talking about a great book written by Ben Schott called Schottenfreude, where he found lots of linguistic gaps in English and then got a German translator to make up a German word to fill the gap. I think this is one of them, but he created a word, and I wish I could remember it in German, for the sense of gnawing sort of disappointment that you have only half eaten a snack, say it's a chocolate biscuit, and you know you've not finished it, but you can't find the rest of it. Have you ever had that? I have that sort of sense that, okay, I know there's a bit of chocolate left here somewhere, but I cannot find it because I know I've not finished it. That's very similar. So should we ask the purple people to come up with an idea for this one? We would very much like it's a word to express the disappointment you feel when you go to have another sip of coffee and it's all gone, but you were sure there was some left. Yes, not just coffee, I think. I think it applies to chocolate and all sorts. All sorts of things that disappear. Yeah. Frustrating. Yeah, so it's not I, a snack accident. I, I still remember when I was a child, I used to like chocolate cupcakes that you could buy at a, a tea shop called Lions. Mm. And they came in silver foil. And the chocolate at the top was quite hard. And you peeled away the silver the side without actually breaking any of the crenellations. Oh, and I would then nibble around this and I would eat the chocolate slowly going round and round and round leaving and I'd eat the cake bit underneath leaving the last bit of chocolate icing as my favourite bit and I still remember the day I'd got this little chocolate thing on the plate and my mm. one of my sisters came in and she saw it picked it up popped it in her mouth and here I am oh. 60 and more years later still brooding about this no. Yeah, yeah, you still obviously remember it incredibly vividly. Yeah, I do. I do. It was a painful moment. Well, these are the things that happen. Okay. Ali Ali Oxenfree. Ethan Reynolds has been in charge. It's probably Ethan, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, Ethan comes from Los Angeles in California. Say hi to Megan and Harry when you catch them in the street doing their shopping. Hey, Susie and Childs. I'm a new listener and I love the show. I love the recent bit on playground words, especially the various safe words during games mm-hmm. of tag. Growing up in suburban LA, the word was always Ollie Ollie Oxen Free. I'm unsure of the proper spelling. Uh, Mm. And to this day, it confuses the daylights out of me. I'd figured it was just random syllables strung together by some long-forgotten kid and the phrase stuck for some reason. But your chat on the show got me wondering if there was a legitimate origin or reason for it. Is this something you've heard of before? I'd love to know more. Well, Ethan, Susie Dent is the person to come to. (laughs) Ollie Ollie, oxen free. I love this. This is as elusive as the Fainites one that I mentioned, which is spoken up and down Britain and a lot of older generations remember saying Fainites. You and I said packs, I think. I used to say yep. packs anyway. Ollie Ollie Oxen Free is such a lovely one to investigate this. I can't unfortunately provide a definitive answer, but there are lots of theories. One is that it's a corruption of all ye, all ye outs in free. Everyone's still out and about. You can come home now. It's safe. Possibly. German origin. Now, I like this one, but it does sound unlikely, but I like it, of course, because it's German. But that is alle, alle Ochsen sind frei, or all the oxen are free. But quite what 
that means why you would be an ox in a game of tag, I'm not completely sure. But apparently it's been referenced in lots of songs and in a film of the same name with Catherine Hepburn, which I don't know. And I love Catherine Hepburn. Did you ever meet her? No. No. Oh, that's, oh that's, how, that would have been one for the bucket list, wouldn't it? That would have been wonderful. How wonderful yeah. to have met Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. So it's obviously not just, you know, limited to sort of a few pockets of get of children, you know, and not just America by the sounds of it, although obviously Catherine Hepburn was out there. So who knows? But I love the fact that there is a film starring Catherine Hepburn called Ollie Ollie Oxen Free. 1978, it was a family adventure film, apparently, and it was all about... Catherine Hepburn, who's slightly eccentric and she owns an antique store and refuses to part with her merchandise because it's of sentimental value. So it's obviously all linked up to that sort of sentiment of childhood. But that's a great question. I I love that question. I wish I had a better answer for you. If people want to do homework between episodes of Something Rhymes With Purple Mm. and want to explore themselves, what for you would be the two, give me two and maybe make it international, the two big works of reference you would recommend they go to? And are they available? online or do people still go to libraries and find books there one would be i imagine the oxford english dictionary yes the oxford english dictionary now sometimes they do have offers on for individual subscription but if you can't get that i know it's not very easy to get to libraries at the moment so it's probably not a great time to suggest this but most libraries and academic institutions do have a free subscription to the oed is that the way to get it now because i've got upstairs given to me many, many years ago by Dr. Robert Birchfield when he was editor of the OED, a sort of 16 volumes of it plus some supplements. But now, of course, it's being the language we're discovering more every day. And Mm. therefore, I imagine it's being kept up to date online. So should people, in fact, have a physical dictionary or should they subscribe to a dictionary? How does it work? Yeah, it's a really tough one, this, because most people do love the feel of a book, and as do I if I'm reading it. But I have to say, I now have the Oxford English Dictionary online in front of me most of the time when I'm at my desk, if not all the time. And is that available? People could buy that, can they? It's expensive, but they could buy it. It is expensive. So you can get an individual subscription. But as I say, you know, if you can get to a library or ask your library if you can get access, even remotely, that's a really good way of doing it. Oxford Dictionaries online are also pretty good. That's a free dictionary. Merriam-Webster has got great etymologies in and that's there. The that's, that's, the, that's the big uh, American. That's the big American. American equivalent of the OED. Yeah, and that's free as well. But yes, on Countdown now, Giles, I use, as you know, I use a laptop rather than a printed dictionary. And a lot of people are quite perturbed by this. But actually, I'm simply looking at the same dictionary I would have been looking at in printed form, except it is more up to date because print versions of dictionaries are much less in demand these days and consequently they're updated much less frequently. It tends to be quarterly updates for the Oxford dictionaries and they always make a big splash when the new words go into the OED because once a word goes in there, it never comes out. So they're much more scrupulous as to what can be put in the OED. Wow. Speaking of libraries, Jeff Holt has been in touch. He's emailed us, first of all with a joke, a man is in court for vandalising a library book. Apparently, he'd borrowed a copy of War and Peace and tipexed out all the full stops. The judge said to him, we're looking at a very long sentence here. Oh, very Uh, good. I like that. I like that a lot. then, Then a question. Is there a connection between the grammatical meaning of sentence and the punishment meaning 
of sentence. Mm. Yes, there is. And actually, strangely, it all goes back to the Latin sentire, to feel, but also to be of the opinion, because quite often you might feel, I feel that this is the case. We express it in that way, don't we? We express an opinion as a feeling. And sentencia in Latin for the Romans meant an opinion. And of course, that can be used in so many different ways. So it can be a way of thinking, an opinion that you set out in grammatical form as a sort of autonomous thought that is put down, hence the idea of a sentence in grammar or punctuation, or a court's declaration of punishment. So those two are absolutely linked. But yeah, ultimately it goes back to the idea of feeling. So it's linked to sensation and all sorts of things, sentient, we are sentient beings, etc. Very good. That's it. Mm. Look, it's time for the triple whammy, the three words that you'd like us to take away this week, words that we may not know that you love. Okay, you know, quite a lot of people now have auto pens. So I don't know about you, but if I'm asked to sign something these days for work reasons, I'm sent a document that I sign electronically and they kind of give you your autograph for you and you just click, yes, I'll accept this autograph. And it doesn't probably resemble anything like the autograph that you would normally have. Well, in the olden days when we used to sign things by hand, I don't know about you, but do you have a little flourish after your signature, Giles? I don't think I've ever seen your signature, have I? Maybe I have. But like your proper signature. You burnt all those postcards I sent you. I remember. <laughs> no, but if you're writing Giles Brandreth, how does it look? Do you have a little flourish? I practised it for so many years when yeah, I was I in my pre-teens. I yeah. spent hours doing Giles Brandreth and with a little flourish on the TH, but not a little squiggle after it. Mm, OK, well, if you have a little flourish as some kind of embellishment on your signature, it is a paraf, paraf, and that's oh. the flourish on your signature. As I say, oh. I'm not sure how useful it's going to be, but I love the fact that there is a word for it. Because so often we think there isn't. This is a similar one, I suppose, or similar sounding one. Paralipsis. I was obviously on the same page in the dictionary. Paralipsis. Paralipsis is really useful. It's a really cheeky strategy of drawing attention to something while pretending not to. So you could say, and I say this with um, some sense of irony, possibly. Oh, yes, that's a lovely book. And I shall say nothing of the typo on page five. That kind of thing. Or when Al Gore accepted George W. Bush's win, well, he didn't accept it, but he was expecting it. And, you know, obviously he believed it was stolen from him. And it was all a big brouhaha kerfuffle, wasn't it? And he said, if George W. Bush is inaugurated, he'll be my president and I'll never accuse him of stealing the election. <laughs> so <laughs> that is a paralipsis. You know, sometimes you say, oh, yes, yes, not to mention the blibble, but you go on to mention it. That's paralipsis. That's quite useful. And there's another one that I quite like because I think we're all guilty of this at some point. Elosable. Spelled slightly strangely, E-L-O-Z-A-B-L-E, elosable. It means amenable to flattery. You are elosable. And I have to give a hat tip to Simon Hurton on here because he's got a lovely collection of endangered words. And uh, he reminds me of that one, elosable, amenable to flattery. I'm very amenable to flattery. I think you are too, you beautiful creature. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Also, I always found it difficult when I was a member of parliament. Uh, not only am I susceptible to flattery, but I found I always agreed with the last person I met. <laughs> well, it's very difficult that, actually. Actually, having to have independence of thought. I remember being in the library when I was a student and reading critics on whoever I had to write about that week. And genuinely, not being able to come up with an independent opinion because I thought, no, oh, actually, they're completely right. I don't 
I don't actually have anything else to say. Very difficult. To, well, actually, I think most reasonable people think? can see both sides of the argument. So, maybe. you know, we like to think we are reasonable people. Yeah. Which is good. No, maybe that, that is true, actually. Anyway, so those are my three. I was looking for a couple of poems to read at the end of this oh, week yes. with a pasta connection, and I couldn't find any pasta poetry. Oh. But I know people have written pasta poetry, and there's something called macaronics. Uh, amusing poems, ah. and I must explore those and bring them to you another week. Instead, I found a couple of ruthless rhymes that do have a, a culinary okay. connection, so I thought I'd end with those. They're both okay. from the Edwardian era, so mm-hmm. written more than a 100 years ago. One is concerned in the old days people at this time of year would, you know, roast, toast muffins on the fire, toast toast on the fire. I love the idea of Toast, freshly toasted yes. muffins from the farm. It's almost anyway, chestnut time. And, and yeah. this is also a time when people had nannies or nurses. You need to know this to understand the poem. Mm-hmm. Making toast to the fireside, nurse fell in the fire and died. And what made it ten times worse? All the toast was burnt with nurse. <laughs> oh. I said it was a ruthless rhyme. It is ruthless, isn't it? It's the casual cruelty that really appeals to me. Listen to this one. During dinner at the Ritz, father kept on having fits, and, which made my sorrow greater, I was left to tip the waiter. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's our lot from Something Rhymes with Purple for this week. I don't know what we're going to be talking about next week, but we hope it will be linguistically entertaining. And if you want Aww. to contribute, do please get in touch with us. It's purple at somethingelse.com, or we're both on Twitter. What are you on Twitter? I am at Susie underscore Dent. And Good. you are at Giles B1, right? That's it. That's us. Yes. That's us. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Harriet Wells, Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod and Jay Beale. I'm sure I'm forgetting someone. Oh, him. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, like the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.